This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Let's be absolutely blunt. A so-called partnership in which one partner is denied the right to choose a different future, or even to ask itself the question, cannot be described in any way as voluntary or even a partnership at all. So this ruling confirms that the notion of the UK as a voluntary partnership of nations, if it ever was a reality, is no longer a reality. The next national election scheduled for Scotland is, of course, the UK general election, making that both the first and the most obvious opportunity to seek what I described back in June as a de facto referendum. Hello listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Enemy Within podcast. My name is Pete Romand and I am joined as always by James Foley. And today we are joined by a very special guest, David Jameson, the editor of Contour, because today we are going to break down and analyse the Supreme Court's decision, their ruling on the Scottish independence referendum that is now not going to happen in 2023. Hi James, hi David, how are you both doing? I'm doing fine. I felt like I needed to come in and sort of sort you guys out a bit um, because I know that, you know, you're not necessarily up to date on uh, all of the events in Scottish politics. Uh, I'd need to come in and, you know, assert a wee bit of editorial authority over the situation. Sometimes the boss needs to come in, David. Sometimes the boss needs to come in and sort things out. David, I'm not sure I'm going to take that, right? I mean, you have to remember, I get extreme moralism points because I'm going to strike tomorrow. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is why I believe in sort of industrial discipline, basically. You know, none of this striking nonsense, none of this slacking off, right? Uh, I, I'm imposing a bit of discipline, as I say. Some real content production. And James, how, how do you feel about the strike? Well, the turnouts of the strike's been excellent. I mean, we've uh, smashed through most of the anti-trade union barriers by a considerable distance. Um, there's a decent mobilisation for the picket lines. We've already had picket lines for Unison on Monday and Tuesday. That was, you know, cleaners, IT workers, library workers and all that. Out, it was good and lively and noisy and lots of students are supporting it. So I think it'll be a good picket line for the lecturers as well. Thursday, Friday and next Wednesday, I'm optimistic that it's going to go pretty well in terms of mobilisation. Whether we manage to force university management into concessions is another matter. I think that'll be a longer and more arduous process. But I think we'll get off to a good start in these coming days. And remember, listeners, you need to go to contour.scot for analysis of these strikes and more. David, have we got analysis coming out? There's obviously a wave of strikes, but there's um, strikes by workers who have much greater claim to being actual proletarians on Thursday as well, including uh, there's obviously more dates in rail, post office workers and other people who do real jobs with their hands. Right. Okay. just to be clear, right, UCU is not just shiftless professional managerial academic types and you know, uh, the managers of academics and all that sort of thing, right? There are real people in this union as well. I'm not one of them. I'm just saying that there are real people. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I apologise to UCU members. I was using James as my vision of who you are as a collective group of people, and that's probably unfair. No, they're not all shiftless like I am. 
Some of them use their hands to type emails. Yeah, like, you know, push uh, paperwork around and all those other things, you know? I mean, like, there's lots going on. But listeners, please do support the strikes. Go find out where your local picket line is. Go and show some support for striking workers. That is a very important thing to do. And it is important to show solidarity with the UCU strike as well. Seriously, if you're a student, please do head down to your picket lines. It means a lot to staff and lecturers who are going on strike. So please do do that. But now let's move on to the topic that we are going to be discussing today, which is the Supreme Court ruling on whether or not the SNP can hold a referendum on Scottish independence. It looks like we will not be free by 23. David, do you want to give us an update on what's happened today? Well, it was predictable. Basically, the Supreme Court has, in just six weeks, finally judged that Scotland cannot hold, or Scottish Parliament rather, cannot hold uh, an independence referendum under its own steam. Which, as far as I can tell, not having a great deal of legal knowledge or experience, is a pretty straightforward reading of the Scotland Act. Anything that would affect the UK constitution must be decided by the instruments of the UK central state. That's the basic idea of UK constitutional politics. And I strongly suspect that the SNP leadership were anticipating this uh, decision today. The fact that it was decided in just six weeks made me wonder if the outcome would be uh, that they would rule that they couldn't decide on any prospective bill for Scottish independence because they would need to see the real legislation, as it were, first. As it happens, they just went for a full out, quite a hard no, in fact. If there is a surprise from the decision, it's just how hard the judgment is. It's just to simply say, you can't do this, basically. And it's interesting that it was framed as Scotland is part of a voluntary union, and so you can't decide on whether or not you can leave it, which I thought was kind of funny. Yes, absolutely. And and this is this is where it gets difficult for us because I think you have to hold two apparently contradictory attitudes in mind at the same time. One is the UK constitutional state is deeply undemocratic. It certainly doesn't represent a meaningful exercise in what you might call national self-determination. That's clear from the judgment today. What's also clear from the judgment is this is how state and legal power typically works. I've come across some quite strange attitudes in the last six weeks that the Supreme Court has been sitting. One of them is that claims that the law should be neutral. And you often find this, um, especially from liberal thinkers, there's this attitude that all of the institutions of society should be neutral, whether they are the courts or the media or whatever. But it's never a claim in any legal system that the courts are neutral. The courts are openly biased towards the law as it currently exists. The legal system of any state is established to defend the coherence of that state. And no lawyer or judge ever makes a claim that that is not the case. And let's remember as well that what they submitted to the Supreme Court was not quote-unquote Indyref 2. It was a demand for a non-binding referendum, which Westminster would still have had to accept for it to take legal effect. And um, so this is not this was not an attempt at a rerun of 2014, something else that's been obfuscated. But when the SNP leadership decided to submit this to the Supreme Court, they already knew this. They already knew that the Supreme Court 
was legally bound to defend the UK state constitution. It's as simple as that. So I think we have before us quite a difficult job of maintaining extreme scepticism or just simple repudiation of the supposed democratic character of the British state, whilst being completely honest about the SNP leadership and the wool that they are trying to pull over everyone's eyes uh, with the rhetoric that they are deploying and so on. I'd much rather, I don't know about you guys, but I got into politics to take very firm stances <laughs> on issues and to simply say, I'm on side X against side Y, I demand justice and so on. And in an ideal situation, that's what you want to be doing. In a situation like this, I have to say, the playing field is overpopulated by bad actors and you're in the unenviable position of having to criticise all the bad actors at once. Yeah, I mean, I think you're in a position where, of course, we can condemn the structural impediments that exist. I think the criticism, though, that can be made is that very often there has been this tendency amongst the SNP leadership, some of its supporters, and certainly media institutions uh, such as the National, to pretend that those structural impediments do not exist in order that we can kick the can down the road a bit with this strategy. So remember before we lurched towards this Supreme Court followed by plebiscite strategy, the assumption was, at least if you believe Nicola Sturgeon, that if we kept voting for the SNP long enough and kept giving them more mandates, then eventually the Conservative government or Labour, depending on who was in power, would inevitably they would inevitably collapse before the effect of Scottish democracy. And therefore there was no need to pursue some of these alternatives, the so-called Plan B or any of these types of things. And they wouldn't even brook a debate about different strategies for undertaking the campaign for Scottish independence. It was just kind of a fact that they asserted that eventually the Conservative resistance would have to collapse. Eventually, it became entirely clear that that was never, ever going to happen. Now, we have known all along what it is the British Constitution says. We don't like it, right? We believe in some sort of abstract, airy-fairy way, of course, in the idea of... Scottish sovereignty and the right of self-determination and so on. But there is very little precedent internationally for such an undertaking, as uh, I have argued in my book alongside Ben Ray, Scotland After Britain. I'm not trying to just push my book, by the way. I'm just saying we did make this precise argument. There is very little precedent for this type of undertaking by a minority nationalist movement. So it's very well to say that we should morally speaking, have some sort of right of self-determination. In practice, it's very unclear how we were ever going to exercise that and how we we're going to get around the barriers that are there in the British Constitution, as they are there, of course, in the Spanish Constitution and, you know, in many other countries as well. It was always going to be a particularly difficult undertaking. But what I resent was the idea that we would firstly say that they had to collapse before a democratic mandate, which they never would. And then secondly, that we were definitely going to be having a referendum in October 2023 because we were taking it to the Supreme Court as if that was ever seriously going to find anything other than what they found today. And listeners, you can get James's book at versobooks.com. I'd thoroughly recommend it. James says he wasn't plugging it, but I will. But I think it's worth taking a moment to look at how we got to this position. Because as you've both just talked about, summer 2023 was not the first time we've been promised another referendum. In fact, 
I don't know if I can remember an SNP conference since 2014 in which another referendum wasn't promised. This has happened time and time again. It feels like we've been stuck in limbo for eight years now. David, you as a journalist have attended many of those SNP conferences. Could you maybe just walk us through the timeline that got us to the point where the SNP felt like they needed to take this to the Supreme Court? Yeah, in fact, I think there's only been one or two SNP conferences I haven't attended since 2014, which of course was the date of the last independence referendum. And some people, even at the time, called this the neverendum, uh, which we now know it lasted at least eight years. But we went straight from September 2014 through to the next May's general election in 2015, where the SNP romped home with a massive victory, which also saw the collapse of Scottish Labour. That victory, which gave, if I recall, the SNP 56 out of 59 seats, was powered by the still smouldering embers of that huge mass movement from 2014. And in fact, I believe that in 2015, the SNP secured 50.0% of the vote, which will become important as we discuss the, the future of Nicola Sturgeon's strategy for independence. But it should be said that in 2014-15, it was still the case that the SNP was saying, the matter has been settled for now. That situation maintains through to the Brexit vote on June 23rd in 2016. And it's this that launches us into the present campaign, supposed campaign for independence, because in the Scottish elections of that year, the SNP had already pledged that if there were a material change in circumstances, such as Scotland being taken out of the European Union against its will, that was literally the wording in the manifesto, then the SNP would have every right to hold another independence referendum. I believe it was in 2017 that there was first a vote in the Scottish Parliament demanding a second independence referendum. During this time, of course, the Brexit impasse is picking up a great deal of steam. Nicola Sturgeon's strategic intervention into the Brexit situation was not first and foremost to demand independence. It was to demand that the UK remain in the European Union. And to that end, she joined the so-called People's Vote movement for a second vote to replace the first one in, in 2016 and famously took a delightful selfie with, among other butchers, Alistair Campbell of Iraq War dodgy dossier fame. At the same time as she's flying down to London to join these demonstrations with the war criminals and Mr Bean and so on, she is systematically ignoring the huge street-level movement which is developing in Scotland, which is the largest political movement in Scottish political history. Tens of thousands regularly taken to the streets, several major demonstrations every year across 2016, 2017 and 2018. She never joins any of these demonstrations. She never officially sanctions the movement. In early 2020, Nicola Sturgeon makes her third, I believe, attempt to demand another independence referendum. It's shot down in flames again. Shortly afterwards, we enter the pandemic. The pretense throughout this period is still that Scotland will go for a second independence referendum. How it's unclear, because the the process has been systematically blocked by Westminster. Nonetheless, that continues to be the official position right up until June of this year, 
when Nicola Sturgeon announces her latest strategy to submit proposals to the Supreme Court that she can take a consultative referendum through the Scottish Parliament, sidestepping Westminster in that sense, and if the Supreme Court says no, to then proceed to a so-called de facto referendum, which is the SNP standing on a one-issue ticket in the next UK general election. So sorry for the long saga, but that's the long and winding road to today. There's something quite extraordinary about this whole thing. I noticed some people tweeting things like, this is a devastating blow to Sturgeon's agenda of holding this independence referendum and so on. To me, the bigger question always was, what the hell would Nicola Sturgeon have done if the Supreme Court had said, aye, on you go, go and hold it? I think it would have been an absolute chaotic situation, quite frankly, because it's quite clear that, number one, you would have had the problem that they have absolutely no programme for independence that remotely makes sense. And I think so far what has been published would be entirely ripped apart if it was ever to come to a referendum situation. There's no campaign, there's no nothing really that you would expect in a run-up to being 11 months from a referendum. This is a very obvious point. But the only reason that we were allowed to have a referendum in 2014 is because David Cameron and the Conservative Party thought they would win by a landslide. And the only situation in which we are going to be able to hold another referendum is if the Westminster parties think it is tactically within their interest to do so. This means that any time we fight a referendum, it's not going to be on a terrain of our own choosing. Now, one thing I would say is, I mean, if I was Rishi Sunak and... The Tories are not doing very well just now. Why not call Sturgeon's bluff? I would think about going, okay, let's settle this question once and for all. We said it was once in a generation. Let's really make it that way. You hold your referendum in the summer. The SNP have no campaign in place and would have to fight the election with the prospect of Keir Starmer winning a historic majority at the next UK general election. Conditions which mean that people are far less likely to vote for Scottish independence. I mean, it's a it's a fun scenario. I'd like to think I'd like to think it's sort of passed around at number ten. Is like, wouldn't it be funny if we actually said yes and they don't have a campaign or a prospectus and we just absolutely hammered them, right? Um, we need to remember that something quite profound happened to the British establishment in 2016, which is that they learned to hate referendums in a big way. The British establishment suffered a monumental defeat in 2016. And it sent shockwaves through the entire establishment, and not just Britain, but around the world. David Cameron is the most reviled figure in the British Tory party probably today, probably even more so than Liz Truss, um, because he broke a golden rule, which is that he opened the door to the public, and the public spat all over the British establishment and caused them serious problems. I'm sure in retrospect they looked at the 2014 referendum, which the Tories at the time welcomed as a victory and said, you know what, we weren't that far from disaster there either. And what's more, you've created this running sore in Scotland. So I think the British establishment are sick and tired of referendums at this point. I reckon it will be a very, very long time before we ever have another one. I absolutely agree. And I think that, as you say, this is a lesson that's been learned by more than just the British establishment. Because if you look at the history of referendums from, say, around the turn of the century, around the year 2000, up until 2016, you have a steadily increasing number of referendums. And what, what were they used for? 
For the most part, what would happen is segments of the elite of different countries would come together alongside business and other elements of the establishment. They would put forward a referendum that they knew they would win, that they were sure that they would get a large majority for, and as a result, they would garner public and popular legitimacy. In an era in which parliaments are more and more unpopular, the referendum became a mechanism via which the elite could gain consent from the population over potentially controversial decisions. Since 2016, there have been no such referendums. I think that there has been a lesson learned, which is let's not you know, let the people decide on something because we actually can't trust them anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the big thing that's going on here, as David's kind of highlighted, is elements of what you might call the ruling class in the United Kingdom can no longer trust the political class to be able to effectively run things on their behalf. And the story of referendums in this country is basically linked to that, uh, which is exactly why you would have been in this weird situation where, on the one hand, the SNP would have been going into this referendum on a platform that was much more chaotic in some respects than the very chaotic platform of the Brexiteers in 2016. has all sorts of holes in it, and frankly, it's not a viable basis on which to establish any type of nation-state, no matter what you want, even if you want a standard neoliberal, etc., etc., type state, there is no way that this all adds up, right? So on the one hand, you would have had that. On the other hand... It's quite possible that they could have won as well in this odd way, right? Because every time you think that things have got as bad as they can possibly get for the ruling political blocks in the United Kingdom, something even worse tends to happen. And it doesn't seem to bottom out this particular crisis. And so there's every possibility that we could have got into a referendum by an accidental process the SNP leads on an entirely incoherent and in some cases rather madcap set of proposals around independence and yet it sort of wins by accident because in the process of it the British governing class and ruling class end up crashing the economy or something stupid. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. So, David... How have the SNP reacted to today's announcement? Nicola Sturgeon came out and had a press conference. What did she say? The first thing to say about that press conference is that it was an SNP press conference. And that's interesting in itself because Nicola Sturgeon submitted this to the Supreme Court, not as a member of the SNP, not as the leader of the SNP, but as the First Minister of Scotland as the leader of Scotland's devolved institutions, making a case for the democratic rights of those devolved institutions. Six weeks later, she reemerges not as the First Minister of Scotland, but as the leader of the Scottish National Party, to make the following pitch. Having been frustrated at the Supreme Court, we will now proceed to a UK general election where you almost vote for the Scottish National Party. 
somewhat, you know, demonstrating the porous membrane between Scottish government activities and Scottish National Party activities. So obviously, it's next stop, general election, so-called de facto referendum. Something interesting did happen at the press conference, which is that mostly in responding to journalist Nicola Sturgeon, let the cat out of the bag on what the terms of that de facto referendum would be. Now, back in June, she had already announced that this would be an SNP project. It wouldn't be for anyone who wants to stand on a, a single-issue independence ticket at the next general election. There was then an internal debate that lasted about six hours in the SNP over whether this would be a majority of seats for the SNP would mean an independence mandate or a majority of votes. She was contradicted by some of her closest ministers before she finally came out and said, no, it's votes. And she repeated that at the press conference today, that it would be votes in her view. That's a big and important distinction, because the SNP, judging on recent elections, would almost certainly win a so-called de facto referendum if we were talking about the SNP winning a majority of seats. They will almost certainly lose if it's votes, leaving us all, I suppose, to guess what it is exactly that Nicola Sturgeon wants out of this process, which I think is a, an open and very difficult question to answer, because she's basically sealing in the conditions for certain defeat for a so-called de facto referendum, which at the same time, of course, would be a certain victory for the SNP in terms of returning MPs back to Westminster. Now, she says that all of this will be ironed out in an SNP conference next year. But if you know anything about SNP conferences, you know that they are some of the least democratic spaces in public life. And so if that's what she's thinking, I assume that's what we are going to get. I very much agree with that, David. I mean, I guess the risk, though, is very much a longer term one here, because if they do pursue this strategy, it seems to me, firstly, that they will lose. But certainly also that they will whip a substantial proportion of Scotland who might otherwise be reluctant into voting for the SNP on the basis that this would really be our last chance and on the basis that you will have a lot of unionists and other unpleasant characters crowing over the fact that the yes side is going to suffer a near certain defeat. But the ultimate outcome is still likely to be the case that given that we have so much serious going on with the economy and so on, uh, that people will say, I'm going to vote for my immediate interests rather than this sort of airy-fairy prospect of some sort of future independence, which is not very well defined and so on. And so therefore, I just think it's entirely likely that they would suffer defeat. But what that defeat would mean is that by the terms that the SNP has established, the Yes team has then suffered two pretty conclusive defeats in a row. And on that basis, I think unionists will be well within the right to say this is settled then again for another generation by the terms that the SNP has established. And then it really is back to the drawing board and it really is a situation where why would you vote for the SNP over the vast array of other centrist options that present themselves to the Scottish electorate? You're both saying that it's very unlikely that the SNP are going to win in the terms that they set out. That is to say that they're going to win a majority, 50% plus one votes for the SNP at the next general election. But it's not impossible. 
Now, it's very unlikely, even at the high point of their electoral success, which I would say is 2015, the UK general election in 2015, where they have a landslide, they don't get 50% then, which is why I, I think both of you are saying it's highly unlikely that in this setting, after even longer in power and after a certain amount of disaffection has set in, that they're unlikely to win now. The thing is, though, that even under the unlikely circumstances that they were to meet the metrics that they have set out in the next general election, I can't see Nicola Sturgeon unilaterally declaring independence. Even if the SNP romps home in the next election, there are still no legal mechanisms via which Scotland can declare independence. Nicola Sturgeon has proved herself time and time again to be somewhat small-c conservative and managerial in her approach. The idea of her sending Scotland and the UK into an absolute crisis by unilaterally declaring independence and the economic ramifications of that to me, that seems quite far-fetched. To me, it seems like she knows that this isn't a winning strategy. Yeah, and th this was actually something which was said to me by an SNP politician uh, just a few hours after the de facto referendum policy was announced back in the summer. Because I was under the impression that Nicola Sturgeon was saying, well, we'll just do UDI at that point. And I was thinking, well, that, that cannot possibly be right. And it was explained to me that no, um, this would be a mandate for negotiations with Westminster, and it would only be you know, independence if Westminster agreed. So actually, what would be delivered in this de facto referendum would be the same as what was delivered, for example, in the 2019 election, when the SNP also had independence in their manifesto, and on numerous other occasions. The only difference with a forthcoming GE de facto referendum is that this mandate would be very much more difficult to achieve. So the strategic value of that, I'm not sure about at all. This does all leave us again, as I say, with a difficult question of what is Nicholas Sturgeon actually trying to achieve here? And it's, you know, the, the questions that haunt you, was any of this real? I mean, all the way back to 2016, was it real? Was it always a vote getter? Was there a part of Nicholas Sturgeon's thought processes where she really imagined an independent Scotland. You know, these are difficult questions to answer because they involve a kind of mishmash of political judgments and psychological judgments um, and so on. But I think by this point, Nicola Sturgeon is looking for a way out. She's looking for a legacy. The very last thing I think that she would do is, as you say, enter into some kind of UDI style battle and destroy her reputation as a politician in good standing on the international stage, which is what she's always wanted to be. And finally, of course, it leaves her, if, if this does achieve, as you assume it would, with yet another huge election victory, not one which provided a mandate this time for independence, but certainly one that said maybe 50 plus MPs down to Westminster, that's a good thing to walk out on. She, can walk, she could walk away from Scottish politics at that point saying, I'm more or less the most successful Scottish politician in history, certainly since the history of devolution. I mean, look how many elections she's won, you know, look how she's changed, moved the dial so on, on support for independence. I mean, imagine it went as high as 48 or 49%, not impossible. She could say, look, I've shifted the dial. So I wonder at this point if this is really about securing a legacy for Nicola Sturgeon. 
Yeah, I agree, David. Um, I think that might well be the case. She's certainly going to leave whoever is her predecessor on a very difficult set of circumstances. But the wicked question that you're asking there also, I think, implies to the whole of Scottish politics, because it's not just Sturgeon. In a way, everyone has been playing the same game. The whole unionist bloc in Scottish politics has basically built their own vote legitimacy on the claim that Nicola Sturgeon is hell-bent on independence and is ignoring the day job. And it's not just them, and it's not just them and Sturgeon. It's also the whole Scottish media bloc who are still playing the game, as if the whole thing was ever a serious prospect, and as if we could ever have expected anything different to come of the Supreme Court judgment. Because ultimately, this sells papers, and it's the only drama that you actually have in Scottish politics that's worth talking about. And therefore, there are a whole range of vested interests that have essentially, I think, been founded on something of a fantasy. I think you can also apply that to much of the Scottish left too. Insofar as they've been saying there is an independence referendum coming and our job is to be the people who are shouting loudest about how we need council houses or whatever it is in that coming referendum as opposed to any other type of analysis whatsoever. So I think, you know, there is... um, There's a whole range of people who, frankly, have been embroiled in the creation of something of a collective national fantasy over the last couple of years, and perhaps there's a broader reassessment that needs to go on around that. In defence of Nicola Sturgeon, is it the case that she was, at least insofar as it relates to Scottish independence, in an impossible position? Because she was expected to deliver a second referendum. But the reality is that the only way to do that is for the party in power at Westminster to sanction it. The Conservatives were never going to do that. Labour were never going to do that. And in fact, the moment that an election campaign comes up, the Tories go on the attack of the Labour Party, saying they're weak, this is going to lead to a coalition of chaos with the SNP, you're going to let the Scottish Nationalists in, and so on. So Labour have had to be very hard on saying they will not allow a second referendum, except for Corbyn who had a principled position that nations deserve the right to self-determination. And the other alternatives open to Sturgeon are things like the Catalan route, which, let's be honest, tactically has a number of problems associated with it. That would be chaotic, certainly something that she, I don't think, ever seriously considered. And the other alternative is a legal challenge. So outside of the possibility of a general election at the UK level, which resulted in a hung parliament in which the SNP was able to exert enough force to demand uh, a second referendum on Scottish independence as a condition of supporting a minority government. Outside of those highly contingent circumstances, was there ever any way to get a second referendum? I mean, you're right, Pete, to be honest. I mean, it was always a difficult thing to achieve, which is why it did really a very particular type of leadership to get there. Remember that there isn't really a precedent for this type of separation, except under the circumstances of the breakdown of empires and states under very, you know, extreme circumstances of decolonisation, war, etc, etc. So it was always a tough thing to do. But there's a couple of things I think that need to be said in this regard. The first thing is that she always made out like it would be a relatively easy process to achieve. There was a narrative for many years backed up by the National, backed up by all the institutions surrounding Indy, broadly speaking, with some 
honourable exceptions, that eventually they would just cave to the process of Scottish democracy. That was never likely to be viable, so they were essentially selling a pup in regard to the structural impediments that were in place that were always going to incentivise the leaders in Westminster to block any proposals for a referendum, regardless of how much democratic legitimacy they possessed. The second point is that during the process of maximum opportunity, she didn't take the advantages and in fact in many ways acted in the opposite manner than you would have really expected under those circumstances. Rather than pursuing when mobilisation was at its peak, the question of Scottish independence and ruthlessly pursuing that on a political level through the official channels, Sturgeon spent the whole time parading around campaigning for a people's vote. A campaign that was largely an anti-leftist bloc that was built up and emerged through existing Westminster elite channels. That campaign in its entirety became Sturgeon's priority in a way that David has outlined. That was the peak of independence mobilisation. That was the peak crisis of the British state. And ultimately Sturgeon's priority at that point was to undermine Jeremy Corbyn and his experiment within the Labour Party. Now, as you have yourself said, Pete, Jeremy Corbyn is the only Labour leader you are ever likely to get who would remotely contemplate the idea that there would be some sort of second referendum on the basis of democracy. I don't think, by the way, I don't quite agree with you that that's because Jeremy Corbyn has a principled position on that particular question. I think it was more just a set of contingent circumstances that meant that Macdonald and Corbyn were willing to contemplate that in a way that no other Labour leader ever would. And yet Sturgeon's priority, very obviously expressed by the way that she related to the People's Vote movement, was precisely to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. I think Nicola Sturgeon, by the way, is much more factional than people let on. I think she sometimes makes decisions purely on the basis of what appear to be hatreds, um, obviously in and around the Alapa party and so on. But also, I think she was genuinely angered by the audacity of Labour to elect a leader from the left that had a more established anti-war, anti-nuclear type of politics than arguably she did yeah, I think that we need to be careful with the parsonage of Nicholas Sturgeon and all these events for this reason. There is uh, a section of Scottish nationalists, uh, left nationalists and so on, who hold her entirely responsible for the failure of this supposed independence drive since 2016. And they do so in a way that I think blinds them to the real nature, the real stature of the strategic problems of bringing about national independence. It's much easier to say Nicola Sturgeon came along with a pair of scissors and bust our football than to admit the scale of those strategic problems. So, for example, the ways in which some people say, you know, Alex Salmond is the king across the water, he was done in by Sturgeon so that she could get in the way and, yeah, knife the football, is part of this story. It's true, of course, that Salmond achieved uh, the first independence referendum, but as we've been discussing, he did so in a radically different context, where the British state was prepared to take what it saw as very limited risks in order to quash a nationalist movement in Scotland. I am utterly unconvinced that Alex Salmond or anyone from the tradition of constitutional Scottish nationalism, 
wouldn't have recapitulated many of the exact same faults that Nicholas Sturgeon has in the last few years. I think if, if, if Sturgeon does have some unique blame to carry, it's that she is one of the most dogmatic in that particular school of politics. She shares many of its weakest features, the weakest features of the modern SNP. For example, her obsession with transnational organisations representing a counter to the nasty bully boys of the British state. It is a total fantasy, and she seems to be completely caught up in it. I mean, one of the big stories of the last few years is that the question of Scottish independence has been welded tight to the question of EU membership in a way that's really disastrous for the future of Scottish independence for so many reasons. One is that there's likely to be a degree of reconvergence between the central British state and the EU in coming years. Another is that the EU itself is likely to move through a series of intensifying crises in coming years that see its periphery nations you know, going deeper into debt. Even the heart of the European project in Germany is suffering terribly and is losing sovereignty to the United States as we speak as a consequence of the war in Europe. So she's really made Scottish independence, official mainstream Scottish independence, a hostage to fortune on a number of levels. And that's just one of our crimes. The other, as James says, is to have very deliberately and vindictively demobilised the movement for Scottish independence. Nicola Sturgeon is fundamentally elitist. She is someone who is deeply suspicious of any political challenge. And if she if she's worse in some senses than other leaders of the of the Scottish national sort of nationalist tradition, she's less pragmatic, more dogmatic, more managerial. She hasn't emerged from a period of mass politics, really. She she's someone who's very adapted to a kind of post New Labour type of politics. And for all those reasons, I think both she and crucially the tr political tradition she represents are utterly unsuited for the task that they've set themselves. I've said for years that I think that Scottish nationalism is poorly equipped for the question of Scottish independence. It just fundamentally doesn't understand the nature of the antagonisms aroused by de demands for independence. And this Supreme Court case has been telling in that regard, as has this phenomenon of saying outside pressure from the so-called international community will force the British state to yield. That both misunderstands the international community, who never want to see a powerful state yield to an insurgent internal force almost ever, but it also just fundamentally misunderstands the British state, which is supposed to be the arch enemy of Scottish nationalism. The British state waged a dirty war in Northern Ireland for decades. It murdered innocent people to hold on to a province that it doesn't even really benefit from, except in matters of, sort of prestige and control of the population. I mean, that's just one way in which this is a total misunderstanding of what the British state is. Nicholas Sturgeon knows fine well what the British state did in Iraq, did in Afghanistan. She supported British troops remaining in Afghanistan after 20 years. She knows that these people cannot be shamed. The British state cannot be shamed into yielding to democratic demands. That is the last thing that will ever happen. So on that then, on the question of mass politics and perhaps how you can force demands 
onto the British state and onto power. The response of a lot of the left, that I've seen at least on Twitter today, has been to say that the only way to secure a second referendum is through mass mobilisation, grassroots activity and building a mass movement from below. As both of you have talked about already, there was a period in which there was a large mass movement on the streets which was not led by the SNP. That movement has atrophied to a large degree, but many on the left now are calling for exactly that type of campaign, a mass mobilisation to force a referendum. Is that possible? What do you both make of this? James? Yeah, I think the ship has sailed, as you say. Like The thing about it is that just leftists and intellectuals getting together and calling people out onto the street, if that was effective, then you would have seen absolutely huge mobilisations happen around this court case today. And sad truth is that there just wasn't really great numbers of people there, as there hasn't been huge numbers of people on many of the recent pro-independence demonstrations. As David said, for some amount of years in the up to the pandemic, this was arguably the biggest social movement, political movement in Scottish history, and it was autonomous of the SNP. When people want to move, they will move. And people are not moving right now. Now, I think the lesson that you have to learn about that is that it's when that mobilisation peaks that you have to be able to make the hard and uncomfortable and unpopular arguments in order to achieve real political aims and objectives. And people just weren't willing to do that. All they were willing to do was to cheer on the mass movement to an extent and cheer on Ur Nicola as being the figurehead of an independence movement, when in fact the two were entirely disconnected from one another, as David has said, and we needed to have the more fundamental argument there and then. But it's precisely when the mobilisation peaks that you either have a hard argument or you just lose. And really the lesson the left has to learn out of this is we have lost on the question of Scottish independence for now because we didn't make the hard arguments when we needed to do so between 2016 and 19. I think if you want to talk about how an independence movement could be reconstructed, you would need to begin with a critique of Scottish nationalism that says it's monomaniacal about Parliament to the extent that it doesn't believe in any forms of political action really outside of Parliament. It doesn't believe in a dynamic extra-parliamentary process it doesn't believe in leveraging established institutions of power um, because ultimately it wants an alliance with them. And that's part of a critique that I think needs to be made, including, you know, of the fossilised economic orthodoxy of the Growth Commission, of various ludicrous attitudes surrounding institutions like NATO and the European Union, the total lack of interest of Scottish nationalism in, uh, in sovereignty, uh, particularly popular sovereignty. These things are all linked and they're all a legitimate critique of Scottish nationalism, of mainstream Scottish nationalism that need to be made. But I also think you need to say what has happened has happened, right? It is obvious that the independence movement is not what it once was because, as James says, we lost a battle. We lost a political battle. We lost an organisational battle. And I think as well, I mean, I think that the years between, say, 2016, 2017, 2018, I think they were crucial years. I also think some things could have been done differently during 2014. Never not the case, I suppose. But I do think that once the independence movement was defeated in 2014, that introduced some 
poisonous influences into the wider movement that weren't necessarily immediately apparent. Once a movement is defeated, it becomes defensive and conservative. And that's what we witnessed really immediately after 2014. When the movement retreated, remember that right up until September 2014, no one was joining the SNP. No one felt they needed to. They had an organic sense of you know, collective effervescence, of self-confidence, of strength that comes from being part of a mass movement where everyone's reinforcing each other's confidence, where everyone is saying we're going to win, which is what people were saying right up until 2014. When everyone had a collective enemy that we could all agree on, that creates a momentum where there's a certain area for creativity and pluralism in a movement and for radicalism and for people saying we don't just need to challenge Westminster, we can go further and we can challenge poverty, the class system, international relations, militarism, we can challenge all these things. And you really felt in those days that you could. As soon as uh, the defeat happened in September, people suddenly narrowed their vision and they said, no, we need to consolidate. We need to all come together. There was a backlash against anyone who wanted to maintain the kind of pluralistic scope of the movement. Incidentally, Many of the people who have gone on to complain that they were victimised by Nicola Sturgeon and purged from the SNP were in their own day some of the chief witch hunters against people trying to make hard arguments. I don't say that myself vindictively. I understand the psychological pressures people were under, but we need to be honest about that. And what that meant was that this entire movement was picked up and dumped into the Scottish National Party. And from that point on, they were always going to manage it down they were always going to control it in ways which I think would ultimately uh, defeat it to try and build up political capital for themselves. And look, there are people who today are out there saying democracy will never be defeated and saying things like, if the SNP won't do it, you need to do it. You know, these always sound like really game fighting slogans, right? But they're a deliberate attempt to ignore the basic reality, the material reality of what has transpired here. I, I think that um, the independence movement can be reconstructed one day, but it will actually need to be reconstructed. Like The, the present broken components of the movement are useless to the task, uh, as far as I'm concerned. They are completely ineffective to the mountainous task that faces us. And I think our job is honesty at this point. I think honesty is an absolutely necessary task in the present juncture. I think honesty is absolutely required and unfortunately honesty doesn't always go over well. I think that the people who are calling for mass mobilisation, I think it comes from a good place, which is that they don't want to give up and that they still want to have hope. And they are arguing for power to be transferred from Parliament to the streets. And I think those are all good instincts. However, I don't think they're going to lead anywhere. To me, it really feels like what we are witnessing is the end of a long political cycle in Scottish politics. No, I agree with what you both said. I mean, basically this period, this post-2014 period, in retrospect, what has happened is essentially the Yes movement that was a mass movement in 2014 created something like a golem. And essentially, its function was to, in the most top-down fashion you could imagine, inflict as much pain on the Scottish Labour Party as possible as some sort of revenge for the fact that they did the Better Together Coalition 
and on a circumstance of austerity, the people were understandably dismayed that the party that they had traditionally voted for, and it was synonymous with Scotland, had done that under those circumstances. And to be frank, we all celebrated at the time, and it's true to say that the Scottish Labour Party thoroughly deserved the massive drubbing that they took in 2015. And what we've done essentially is to look the other way as to what it was that was coming in and replacing the Scottish Labour Party, which is essentially a very similar creature. Insofar as people have had the hope post-2016 of going towards some sort of goal of independence and getting the team back together from 2014 and all these other things, you've had more and more intellectual opportunism creeping into the movement, which counts for all the incoherence. I don't think that people in the Scottish independence movement really believe in NATO, really believe in sterlingisation, or really believe in any of this sort of crap. But they've pretended to do so, or pretended it's remotely coherent, insofar as they think that saying these things will accelerate the process of the breakup of the Westminster establishment and our move towards independence. I think we're in a somewhat fortunate position now of perhaps we can accept defeat because although I understand what you're saying, Pete, around the, you know, the impulses and the instincts for mass mobilisation and so on, these aren't mass mobilisations and there are mass mobilisations around strike action and so on that are taking place. So frankly, the old, crude, terrible Marxist point of view which says independence is a distraction in some ways, there is a sense in which a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And genuinely, this can be a distraction from things that are going on. I'll say one last thing on in parenthesis, which is the government which says that it's pursuing an independence referendum in the next sort of 18 months or so, a de facto referendum, is about to enter battle with hundreds of thousands of workers. In fact, yesterday, it told teachers that they should accept a real-time pay cut. Um, so I think that just emphasises the point that James just made there. The world is moving on, Scotland even, the little parochial backwater Scotland is moving on, and there's a point at which an old insurgency turns into a conservative fetter on the development of movements, and we shouldn't allow the Scottish government to hide behind that old insurgency anymore. And with that, we'll leave you there. Thanks so much for joining us, David. It was really fun having you on the pod to impose some editor discipline on us. No, it was uh, it was great, and uh, like I say, you know, you need a, a hoary-handed son of toil to come in and and remind everyone that hard work is important. Uh, and I look forward to my own strikes as a member of the National Union of Journalists. Well, I hope that doesn't happen because it just means Connor shutting down for a few days. But uh, yeah, good luck, James, on your forthcoming heroic proletarian battle. What's going to happen is that the one strike that the SNP is willing to actually back will be the NUG strike because they're so terrified of what Connor is producing and the seasoning analysis that we're going to that we're going to be presenting to the Scottish public that they're going to want David out of action for a few days lazing about. Well, yeah, don't don't assume I can't fall victim to the SNP's famous patronage network. You know, I might not be getting any money from Creative Scotland right now. But let's see if I'm prepared to take militant strike action. Well, with that, good luck to you both. I hope that the picket lines are good tomorrow. 
It was great to see you, as always. And we'll be back next week, listeners, where we will be discussing the late, great Marxist historian and writer Mike Davis, and we'll be discussing five books by him that you absolutely have to read. 